This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Some of you are listening as you drive your kids to university. On that note, I'll talk to the best-selling author of 15 Things Parents of College Students Should Never Do. And... A story of recovery and resilience. I catch up with a longtime friend of the station, Misha Bruger Gossman, as she recovers from a heart attack at age 42. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. IKEA is designing homes for people with dementia. Sweden's aging population is exploding and the furniture giant is launching a new style of home that makes sustainable and affordable housing for patients with memory loss. It's a matter of modifying the design of thousands of affordable homes it has built in Sweden, Finland, and Norway with modifications like old-style knobs instead of digital controls on appliances. There are also therapeutic gardens and a clubhouse for socializing. Life expectancy is very high in Sweden, and by 2040, one in four will be over 65. Late tennis pioneer Althea Gibson was honored at this week's U.S. Open with a new statue in New York. It's considered a long overdue tribute to the first African American to break international tennis's color barrier. She made her mark between 1956 and 58, winning 11 majors and was the first black player to win the French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Nationals. When she retired in 1958, she was the top-ranked woman in tennis, having won more than 50 singles and doubles championships. Gibson survived a heart attack in 2003, but died later that year at the age of 76 from respiratory and bladder infections. The progress I have seen in my lifetime makes me optimistic for the future. That's Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg accepting an honorary degree this week from the University of Buffalo. The 86-year-old justice underwent another round of cancer treatment this summer after a cancerous tumor was discovered on her pancreas. Ginsburg does not need any additional treatment, but will continue to have periodic tests and scans. The treatment comes just months after she was operated on for cancer in her lung. Before that, she was successfully treated for both colon and pancreatic cancer. This week, we lost our beloved Carrie Stratton. He passed away from ALS at the age of 66. Carrie 
was the longtime host on the Oasis on our sister station, the new Classical FM. He also served as conductor for many performances and recordings with a long list of international orchestras. And closer to home, he led the Toronto Concert Orchestra. Despite suffering from this devastating disease that robs people of their ability to walk, talk, eat, swallow, and eventually breathe, Kerry considered himself fortunate. I am so touched. All these people uh, are dear to me. No exception. All dear. I'm a lucky man. Kerry Stratton died peacefully Tuesday night at his home in Thornhill, surrounded by his family. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a milestone on the road to adulthood, and many young people are marking it this weekend as they leave home for university or college. It can be hard for parents to let go and for kids to stop relying on mom and dad to deal with all their problems. Where is the balance? Harlan Cohn is the author of 15 Things Parents of First-Year College Students Should Never Do. I reached him in Chicago. I want you to enjoy every second of this experience because you only get to drop your child off for the first time at college once and dropping them off at university and having that experience and being present is just such a wonderful gift because this is just uh, a blessing in every way. So the first part is to be present. The second part is to trust that everything's going to be okay because they're your kid and they come from you. And that's why they're going to be okay. Or maybe that's why you're scared that they're not going to be okay. We all hear stories about these overprotective helicopter boomer parents who basically do everything for their children. I've heard of people sleeping on the floor in the dorm room to get everything unpacked and ready and all kinds of other stuff like that. I'm a parent, so... I am sympathetic to parents. Uh, you know, we love our kids so much. We want them to be comfortable. We want their needs to be taken care of. But, you know, parenting now has become a little bit different in terms of just the connection through cell phones, through technology, through just this engagement. So there isn't a natural divide between uh, te- the teen years and the university years like it used to be. So parents are really pulled into this experience, some willingly. Um, some students will pull their parents in and parents have to really be great at understanding what's normal and natural and what's to be expected because a parent who knows what's normal is a parent who's going to be less likely to be heightened, less likely to be overbearing and is going to give their, their kids the space and time to navigate this change and get comfortable with the uncomfortable. In your experience, is it usually the parent who wants to be too involved and text too much, or is it the student? A lot of times, the parents are getting text messages or getting calls, or they're getting this information. So if the kid is sharing this information, then the answer is like, what do I do? And that's what I really teach parents to do, is first, uh, talk to your child about how often you plan on talking or texting or the best way to connect. I had one mom who told me she could not get a hold of her kid because he wouldn't text back. And she's like, you know, I have to make these airline reservations. And he said, Mom, just send me something on Snapchat. So now she uses Snapchat, and it was easy as can be. He instantly gets back to his kid. So having an understanding of 
how often to communicate, when do we want to communicate. And what's really important for the parent is to ask the question and not tell your kid what you want and what you need to put it out there. Because if they say, you know, once a day we'll text or, you know, 10 times a day, which is a lot, uh, the parent can at least have an understanding of how often the child wants to engage so that if it ends up being more or less, you know, that will be really informative and helpful. Uh, it's really important to talk about these expectations before uh, saying goodbye. And that means just really being open to whatever answer your child's going to give you. Uh, even if it's not what you want to hear. You have a list of things not to do, starting with wake-up <laughs> calls. Are there really people who uh, call their child at university to wake them oh, up? Libby, yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, these parents have great intention. All parents do. And they think they're doing their kids a favor. But, you know, it's so easy now, whether it's a text or a call or a video or whatever. And there, there are kids who, you know, say, great, I like this. But, like, your, if your kid can't get to class, that's really a sign that that should be the wake-up call. <laughs> and the other piece is, let's be honest, it's not about the parent uh, helping the kid. It's about the parent making sure the kid is safe, in the right place, and doing the right thing. And that's not what the university years are about. It's not the parent's job. What are some of the other no-nos that parents commit? Sometimes parents will show up unexpectedly. <laughs> you say, surprise, <laughs> surprise, here I am. Um, a big one is, Parents will oftentimes have these really rigid expectations, and they'll expect their child to perform at a certain level in the classroom. Well, you know, this first semester, the first quarter, this change, it's really uncomfortable, and most students don't do as well. When it comes to a student who struggles, for parents, I always let them know, you have to give your kid permission to be uncomfortable. You have to allow them to uh, have whatever transition they're going to have, because if they're uncomfortable, if they feel alone, if they make a choice they regret, and you aren't a safe person for them to talk to, then they're going to hide it from you, and they may hide it from everybody. So as a parent, really understanding and renaming the first year the getting comfortable year, as opposed to having these rigid expectations, and if a child doesn't meet them, saying, you know, what's wrong with you? I'm wasting all this money. What's the problem? So um, it's, a big, it's a big issue. Parents should also have their own community whether it's through the university, there's a lot of family and uh, parent groups and sites now, or even having a group of like three to five people who they knew in high school and getting together for like wine and cheese or whatever they want and just talking about the experience. So instead of being inclined to reach out to their kid and be super involved, they can kind of lean back and let their kid lead the way. At what point should parents get involved in what I would consider to be very normal issues that come up as you grow up? It's when it crosses from uncomfortable to dangerous. Most of the situations are uncomfortable. Very few of them are dangerous. And when it goes from that point to it being, you know, unhealthy, unhealthy, harmful, you know, and a, and a child can't advocate, well, that's really a time for a parent to then step in and, and help. But too many parents will see uncomfortable as something that's harmful or dangerous, but uncomfortable is life. Getting comfortable with change is part of this transition, and uh, we're not doing our kids a favor when we intervene and don't allow them to feel the discomfort. Harlan Cohen, thanks so much. My pleasure. Grateful to be here. That was Harlan Cohen with timely advice for the parents of college students. 
I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. That's Misha Brueger-Gossman. At 42, she is an internationally renowned soprano and the mother of two small children. She is also the survivor of two major cardiac events. Ten years ago, she nearly died from a dissected aorta, and just this June, in the midst of a hectic performance schedule, she suffered a heart attack followed by emergency bypass surgery. She stopped by our studios to talk about her recovery. Misha Bruger gossman so good to see you and so good to see you looking so healthy. Thank you, Livy. I'm happy to be here. Very grateful. Very grateful. Take me back. You had this horrible thing happen 10 years ago. I remember I then. The irony is, is that it wasn't even the same part of the heart. Same heart. First time was a dissected aorta in 2009, June 10th. And the second time was a heart attack with double bypass surgery on June 13th, 2019. So 10 years and three days later. Wow. So, I mean, I can live with a cardiac incident every 10 years. I do a lot of living in between that time. I think how you react to these incidents, you can truly see their value. You know, you can see how they are meant to steer you in a different direction. You know, my father died of the same thing that I was being treated for on the other end of the country, like the day. I was admitted. He never knew I was admitted to hospital. And that's its own small grace. So, I mean, I can see God's hand over it all. These things happen a lot, but not usually to somebody so young. True, true. And that's how I got connected and, you know, assigned to my surgeon, Dr. Teresa Kieser, who uses a method of bypass surgery that uses arteries over veins which ensures the longevity of the passageway for decades. And the first question I get after I say that is, why don't they use that as standard procedure? And it's because the surgery is harder and we've always done it the other way. But the tide will change. What's it like just getting used to the idea that you have a problem with your heart? Well, other people have recurring cancers. You know, my response to my own situation is always that it could be way worse. You know, my response to whatever comes across my desk is, you know, thank God it's my desk because I can handle it. And I think you go toe to toe with resistance every day. And the more you're able to withstand you know, what comes for you, the more responsibility you're given because, you know, you can't really have a strong back unless it's tested. So, yeah, I'm about it. I'm I'm thrilled about being alive. <laughs> yeah, being alive is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I know how you feel. How has all of this affected your singing? You know, I haven't rightfully come back to it with the gusto that will soon be needed. <laughs> So I will not be singing the same repertoire my whole life long, my whole career long, and I don't see that as a badge of honor. So I'm looking for the next thing that speaks to me. So change in the genre or just repertoire? No, I think probably just more classical repertoire, because I don't think there's any better music than classical music. 
Do you have a rehab kind of repertoire that you're doing, or are you just hanging oh, out that's and enjoying a good life? Question. Oh, Mozart. Everybody knows that Mozart's really great for the voice. You know, and when I just the general easy scales of it all, you know, warming up every other day just to make sure things are where I left them. But nothing, you know, I, I went to a, a yoga, send, you know, an intensive practice twice a day and four hours of meditation yoga course in the south of Spain because I needed to like expand my body. I needed to get things, you know, kind of back in a physical way, get the muscles firing and, you know, all that stuff, the strengthening of the hip and, you know, getting all the alignment back. And so that is a huge part of the process. That's almost half, if not two thirds of the battle, because your body has to be right because it's the case for the voice. And if you don't want to have a lot of pressure on the voice, then the body has to be strong. How did your kids take this? Oh, they're four and seven. They'll, they'll believe what I tell them. And I don't lie. And we're not scared of death in my house. And they visited enough hospitals. My father was a pastor of visitation. And we don't separate death from life. You can't have one without the other. Misha Brugger-Gossman, so good to see you. (laughs) Good to see you too, Libs. That was the fabulous Misha Brugger-Gossman. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer, Produced by Christine Ross, Paul Thomas, Faz Kazi, and Justin Eacock. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.